Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. It is said that at the dawn of time, man, beast, and all magical beings lived together under Abel, the father tree. But man had been created with a hole in his heart. A hole that no possession, power, or knowledge could fill. And in his infinite greed, man dreamt of expanding his dominion over the entire Earth. of the goblin blacksmiths offered to build the king a golden mechanical army 70 times 70 soldiers that would never know hunger and could not be stopped prince duada begged his father to agree build me this army the king said crown was forged that would allow those of royal blood to command the golden army if unchallenged i am king balor leader of the golden army is there anyone who disputes my right and in his throne room no one challenged his word but wait what if someone could challenge him would they have a fight well, most likely a challenge must be answered but you want to hear the end of this story or not yes please right so, the world was changed, and the next time the humans marched, they felt the earth tremble beneath their feet, and saw the sky darken with monstrous shapes. The Golden Army had no remorse, felt no loyalty or pain. heart grew heavy with regret so he called a truce and divided the crown in three pieces one for the humans and two for himself in exchange man would keep to the cities and the magical beings would own the forests 
This truce would be honored by their sons and the sons of their sons until the end of time. But Prince Nuaga did not believe in the promises of man. And it is said that he went into exile vowing to return the day his people needed him most. So the Golden Army lay dormant, locked inside the earth, waiting. And there it is to this day, awaiting the day the crown is made whole again, silent, still, and indestructible. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 39, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Um, this is a follow-up to last week's episode on Hellboy, um, which I was very surprised at the success of. Um, it's now the joint third most downloaded episode on the day of release, which is just uh, mind-blowing, astonishing stuff. Um, and to be honest, it's probably down to the featuring of co-writer Peter Briggs more than anything to do with me. Um, but I'm honestly just so delighted that Hellboy has been so well received. Um, it deserves it because it's a great movie. Um, obviously, massive thanks to everyone who's downloaded and listened to my episode on Hellboy. Um, and a massive thanks again to Peter Briggs. Um, you'll be hearing from him a little bit later as well. Um, if you are new to Verbal Diorama, welcome. Um, this is my podcast. This is what I've been doing for 39 episodes now. Crazy. Um, and this is obviously, as I said, a continuation on my little two-parter I'm doing on Hellboy. Um, it's important to note I don't just cover comic book movies, but it is a genre that I love completely. Um, I've done all sorts of stuff in the last 37 not including Hellboy episodes, um, I cover anything and everything, really. Um, I'm a big fan of animation. Um, I've done a whole season on animation. I did that from December to March, which was loads of fun. Um, and uh, the other thing you need to know about me is uh, I love Keanu Reeves. Um, and if you are listening to Keanu, uh, get in touch. My email and social media is at the end of the episode. You are very welcome to get in touch with me anytime you like. So last week I looked at Hellboy. Hellboy is obviously a movie that's steeped in the richness of Mike Mignola's stories um, with Lovecraftian monsters, the occult, and also Nazi antagonists. Um, Hellboy 2, uh, as the sequel, uh, retains the director, it retains the cast, but it eschews this kind of darkness for a little bit more of the light. Um, but let's start with the trailer for Hellboy 2. very much alive and I am here to reclaim what is rightfully mine 
Survivors? Same story here, babe. Don't call me babe. Hey, I said, hey. Red, we have company. So a brief synopsis for Hellboy 2. On Christmas Eve 1955, a young Hellboy begs for a bedtime story from his father, Professor Trevor Broom. He's told of an ancient war between humans, goblins, orcs and elves, where the humans prevail. King Balor of the Elves is encouraged by his son, Prince Nuada, to enlist the goblins to build a giant mechanical golden army, which devastates the king as to its brutality against the humans. A truce is formed between humans and the mythical creatures, and the golden army remains dormant for hundreds of years, until Prince Nuada returns from exile and begins to gather the pieces of the crown of Bethmora together. Having sent Myers to Antarctica, Hellboy and Liz are struggling living together and a new agent is introduced to babysit Hellboy, Johann Kraus. Hellboy must learn to weigh up his being with the light of humanity and the darkness of his destiny. The returning cast include Ron Perlman as Hellboy, Selma Blair as Liz Sherman, Doug Jones as Abe Sapien, actually doing the voice this time around as well. Uh, Doug Jones is a fantastic physical actor um, and he also portrays two other characters in this movie. He also portrays the Angel of Death and the Chamberlain, the gatekeeper for King Balor. Jeffrey Tambor returns as Tom Manning. And John Hurt also has a small cameo at the start, Professor Trevor Broom. Um, and new to the cast this time round, we have Seth MacFarlane as the voice of Johann Kraus. The physical performance of Johann Kraus is John Alexander and James Dodd. We have Luke Goss as Prince Nuada Silverlance and Anna Walton as Princess Nuala. You'll notice straight off there's no Rupert Evans reprising his role as Agent John Myers, not because they didn't want him, 
bizarrely, but because scheduling conflicts forced him to decline, so he was written out and the character was sent to Antarctica. Um, the screenplay is by Guillermo del Toro, the story is by Guillermo del Toro and Mike Mignola, and it was once again directed by Guillermo del Toro. Obviously, it was based on Hellboy, the comic series by Mike Mignola, and I went into the brief history of the character last episode, and I don't really want to tread over the same ground again. Um, but in a nutshell, uh, Mike Mignola conceptualised this demon with the name Hellboy. He was doodling for a convention programme cover, and he really liked the idea of this character. Uh, Hellboy as a comic is published by Dark Horse, um, and there have been many Dark Horse comics properties that have been turned into movies. Um, one that you'll know if you've ever listened to any of my previous episodes. Uh, I did an episode on Mystery Men, um, which is episode 23 of this podcast. Mystery Men is a Dark Horse comics property. Um, other movies that you've probably heard of include Sin City, 300, The Mask, um, Barb Wire, that Pamela Anderson one, um, and, uh, and Tank Girl. They're probably the main ones. Um, I spoke in the previous episode on Hellboy, um, that Hellboy did make a little bit of money. It did make a lot of money. Um, it cost $6 million and it made $99 million. Um, nevertheless, Revolution Studios announced a sequel in May 2004. So it was essentially just after Hellboy actually came out. Hellboy came out in the April and in the May they announced a sequel. Um, and they also announced Del Toro's return as a director and Ron Perlman as the title character. Um, a trilogy of movies had been sought by Del Toro and the sequel to Hellboy was originally mooted for a 2006 release. Um, so Revolution Studios planned to distribute Hellboy 2 through a deal that they had with Columbia Pictures. Um, but unfortunately, that deal was never renewed. Um, so in August 2006, the project was acquired by Universal and they were really keen to get going on the sequel and the date was moved to summer 2008 release. Um, in the meantime, in between Hellboy's release in 2004 and all of this going on, uh, Guillermo del Toro was busy with a passion project of his own. Um, that passion project is the absolutely sublime, beautiful Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth came out in 2006. Uh, if you don't know what Pan's Labyrinth is, I implore you to find it and watch it because it's just the one of the most beautiful movies you will ever see in your life. It is a period piece. It's set just after the Spanish Civil War. And it's essentially about a young girl's encounter with a magical, mythical world. It's centred around a labyrinth and a fawn that she meets. Um, it's heavily influenced by fairy tales, by mythology. And Pan's Labyrinth opened to massive critical acclaim, uh, multiple awards, nominations and wins. I have to add as well that Pan's Labyrinth, for me, um, and this is, this is my personal opinion on Pan's Labyrinth, um, in my eyes, it is Del Toro's masterpiece. Um, and Del Toro won uh, an Academy Award for The Shape of Water uh, a few years ago. And The Shape of Water is... I don't want to take anything away from The Shape of Water because I think that is a beautiful movie. I think, again, Doug Jones is in it um, and he is great um, as the, the fish man in The Shape of Water. Um, very similar in design in many ways to Abe Sapien. But... Um, I think The Shape of Water is great, um, but to me, Pan's Labyrinth is Del Toro's magnum opus. It's the most perfect piece of work he's ever done. Um, it's so beautiful and elaborate and, and haunting, and it will devastate you. It will absolutely devastate you. Um, 
Um, you can see this kind of familial resemblance between Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy 2. Um, it's, kind of, it's a bit of like a visual calling card that Del Toro left in 1944's Spain and then picked up in the modern day for Hellboy 2's fantastical world of mythical fairy tales and folklore. Um, I just want to quickly briefly mention, um, because last episode I shouted out a brilliant podcast called School of Movies. Uh, they've done hundreds of po- episodes, like literally hundreds. Um, but their episode on Hellboy always stood out, um, as does their episode on Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Um, and one thing in particular has always kind of really stuck with me. It's something that they said on their Hellboy 2, The Golden Army army episode um and it's one of the reasons why i want to acknowledge them specifically um is the link between pan's labyrinth and hellboy 2 um on a very somber level uh, but a very beautiful level as well um in um and spoilers i guess if you've not seen pan's labyrinth um skip ahead for 10 seconds or so but um in pan's labyrinth ophelia dies in 1944 um, and it's 1944 when Hellboy is born. Um, and it's little things like that that just makes them such a wonderful, um, informative and interesting podcast. So I highly recommend their two Hellboy episodes. I mean, I I recommend them just full stop because I think they're fantastic. Um, but their Hellboy episodes are so much more in depth to so the characterizations and um, and the themes and everything to do with these movies um, and the lore. Um, so, yeah, please go and check them out they're great um so in making um these movies del toro has admitted that he was very much a slave to mignola's vision um in the first hellboy movie and although that movie is beautiful and gothic and filled with creatures kind of beyond anyone's comprehension unless you're hp lovecraft um he was tethered very much to what mignola wanted for the character because obviously mignola is the creator um and there seemed to be a lot of back and forth on hellboy between what the studio wanted and what Mignola wanted and what Del Toro wanted. Um, and for Hellboy 2, uh, Del Toro was really kind of given free reign to do whatever he wanted. Um, he was able to let loose. He even is quoted to say he was able to let his hair down and really kind of go for it. Although Mike Mignola is still on board for Hellboy 2, um, Del Toro's last movie before this one, Hel- before Hellboy 2, was Pan's Labyrinth, um, and that had been nominated for Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay Oscars. And although he didn't ultimately win um, until 2018, until The Shape of Water, um, even Mike Mignola, I think, was really on board with Del Toro's vision to a degree. Um, and he's quoted as saying, you need to make this like Pan's Labyrinth. So so he did. Um, you know, he creations like The Angel of Death, um, this kind of androgynous uh, female character with these amazing x-shaped wings with eyes all along um which interestingly i found out that doug jones actually couldn't hold the weight of of these wings he had to actually be suspended with wires because he couldn't physically stand and hold the weight of them they were so heavy um it's a character called cathedral head who's a kindly librarian at the troll market who helps princess nuala um and even the prince and princess themselves um, and their father um, with their facial markings, this ivory skin, um, and their elf world being bathed in these sort of gold, earthy tones, very similar to the tones used in Pan's Labyrinth when Ophelia is actually within the labyrinth. In Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, um, I'm going to go a bit back and forth in this movie because there is a lot to talk about, but I'm going to try and keep it as, as on topic as I possibly can um, because 
one of the main themes for Hellboy 2 The Golden Army is humanity's greed um, and a desire for conquest. And it's something that comes up a lot, especially in fantasy tales, um, because everyone, humanity really is a plague and Hollywood wants to tell us. <laughs> anyway, the desire of man to take over the world, you know, build on elven land um, and push them underground in essentially what looks like an abandoned factory, um, it does actually compel you to empathise with Nuada on some level. Because although Nuada is the villain of the piece, um, and although his methods are villainous, um, you know, he didn't have to kill a room full of humans at an auction. Uh, to his mind, they are the worst of mankind. Because these are the people who are essentially... Um, pushing this trade of buying and selling priceless treasures from, in inverted commas, forgotten worlds. Um, and all they want to do is make money. Um, money is the root of all evil, as we're told again and again. Um, Nawada blames humanity for all the pain and suffering in the world. But ultimately, he just wants the preservation of his culture and his people. Um, he doesn't care, actually, if humans get hurt. Um, he doesn't harm animals, which is always a good sign. Um, in a movie, if a character is compelled to harm an animal, that is, there's there's no going back really from that. But at least Nuada has a respect for everything other than humanity, um, which is kind of good. Um, uh, he also has this very deep affection for his sister, which we'll come to. And he also has respect for Mr. Wink. Mr. Wink is essentially just a mercenary. So he's just being paid by Nuada to do some stuff for him. Um, it's a really impressive physical performance in a suit. Um, the face is all animatronic. Uh, it's really, really, really impressive. You think it's CGI. It's not CGI. It, that is how good it looks. Um, under the suit is a guy called Brian Steele. Uh, he was the same performer who did... Samael in the original movie which I didn't mention back then but I should have um, and I'm not gonna dwell on the reboot and I know I said that before and I kind of lied because I did dwell on it a little bit but I'm not I don't really want to talk about it a great deal I kind of I'm probably gonna have to but um, I'm just gonna say if you compare Mr Wink and the character of Mr Wink in 2008 to the 2019 reboots um, ridiculous pig fairy thing I think his name is Gru Gruagak or something like that so Gruagak was all CGI, and it's really rudimentary CGI as well. Um, I mean, there's just no comparison. 2019 pig thing looks ridiculous. It looks half-baked. And when you have Mr. Wink, you compare them, and it's just... Mr. Wink just looks so fantastic. But when a 2004 or 2008 movie looks better than a 2019 movie, you kind of have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And spoiler alert, the 2019 movie was not worth it. <laughs> anyway, um, so Prince Nuada has a link with his twin sister, Princess Nuala, that goes beyond uh, the normal sibling bond. Um, they are linked physically, they're linked mentally, and they're linked spiritually. Um, she is the yin to his yang. Um, and when he goes into exile, she becomes essentially the heir to this lost civilization of Beth Mora. Their father, King Balor, entrusts the piece of the crown of Bethmora to her, where in many patriarchal monarchies, the son of the king would be entrusted with that or would be the next in line. I think it's more for necessity than an actual heirloom, so to speak, because Nuala is the natural keeper of such a priceless possession because Nuala can actually be trusted to keep it safe. 
Um, Nuala is the polar opposite to her brother in every way, except the love they have for each other. She fears Nuada, but she still loves him. Um, it's been mentioned in several pieces, actually, um, about a possible incestuous love between Nuala and Nuada, um, in that Nuada seems very jealous of Nuala's relationship with Abe. Um, Luke Goss even went as far to confirm it um, in an interview. Nuada cares for Nuala above everything um, because he knows that his pain causes her pain. At the start, when he actually returns from exile and confronts their father, King Balor sentences him to death and Nuada specifically asks Nuala if she is at peace with the decision. Um, and that's not because her father is going to kill her brother, but it's because her father is essentially going to kill them both. Um, and Nuala doesn't hesitate to accept her father's wishes. Um, Nuala seems to be more submissive, um, whereas Nuada is obviously very aggressive. Um, but we also know from her first encounter with Abe that she's not afraid to take care of herself. Um, and she is the light to Nuada's dark. And, um, and this kind of light and dark, the yin and yang, the opposites attract, that kind of flows throughout this movie. There's a lot of light and dark. Additionally, Nuala's link with the colour blue, um, the colour of Abe himself, is kind of spread throughout the movie. When she travels to the troll market, she's wearing this beautiful blue dress. The books she reads are all blue. Um, even Nuada mentions how she always looks beautiful in blue. Um, I mentioned in the Hellboy episode about how the movies deal with colour and about how in this movie the characters are mirrored in their use of colour. So here we have kind of this link with Nuala and Abe. But interestingly, there's also a link between um, Nuada and Hellboy. And they are essentially two princes of forgotten cultures. So they do have this very character-driven link as well as a theme-driven link, which I find quite interesting. Um, Nuada as well, um, a really great performance from Luke Goss. Um, Brits will remember him from 80s boy band Bros. They had a hit called uh, When Will I Be Famous? It was massive over here back in their day. Uh, Luke Goss was also in Del Toro's Blade 2. Um, Anna Walton isn't given much to do as Nuala, uh, but I watched an interview with them both where she could still recite the ancient Gaelic language that they spoke in the movie. So that's really impressive. Um, it's important to note as well that during the final battle, that although Nuala ends it by sacrificing herself, it's not before Hellboy actually beats Nuada. So Nuada admits that he will never stop um, and he actually begs Hellboy to kill him. Um, but it's Nuala who makes the choice because Hellboy refuses. Um, Hellboy says, I win, you live. Um, and it's mainly because after the experience of killing the forest god, um, he doesn't want that on his conscience. It's Nuala who does what needs to be done to save the world. And that's coincidentally just after Liz has condemned the world. Um, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a different look and feel compared to the first Hellboy. Um, while the first movie is very much set up to introduce Hellboy and his world and his adversity and where he comes from. Um, and as I said in that episode, it's kind of swathed in cool tones of blues and greys and blacks. This one is more character driven. It feels more earthy in tone. We get a more complex villain. We get more on his friendship with Abe um, and the delightful Barry Manilow drinking scene. And we get more on Hellboy and Liz. Um, 
a really fascinating relationship between a fire starter and someone fireproof. Um, but at this stage, he's literally still a hell boy. And Liz is looking for a hell man. Um, Hellboy is still immature and he still lacks the responsible nature that she's looking for. He's missing his father and the guidance his father would dish out. Um, and very early in the movie, we're given the news that he will become a father himself. But Liz is worried because she doesn't feel like he's ready for that responsibility. Um, and that's something that continually kind of pops up throughout the movie. Um, and the other thing that I really like about this one, um, and a lot of sequels have a problem whereby they either recycle what they've already done or they think that you don't need more on the characters because you've already had the characters in the first movie. But in this one, everyone's given more to do. Everyone is given some character growth, some more information about them that we didn't know. Um, Abe is given some great scenes for Doug Jones to show off his natural physical skill. Um, Hellboy is given more growth. Um, he's given more quips. Um, but he's actually allowed to kind of grow up a little bit more um, without the guidance of his father around. And, and Liz, Liz is given the ultimate task of all. Um, and that is um, towards the end when presenting a dying Hellboy to the Angel of Death, um, played beautifully by Duke Jones, um, which is another reason why Abe is in the scene, because Abe couldn't be in the scene because Doug Jones couldn't play the two. Um, but the Angel tells Liz... The Hellboy's destiny is to bring about the destruction of the Earth. And knowing this, does she still want him to be saved? And Liz doesn't really think on it, um, which is interesting when it's the fate of the world kind of versus one man. Um, but she doesn't hesitate because she chooses Hellboy. She chooses him to live and the angel wills it so. But before delivering a dire promise to Liz that she will suffer more than anyone... Um, and in many ways, the prospect of Hellboy 3 at this point um, only seems to deliver bad news because you kind of ask yourself, well, as much as you would want Hellboy 3, what, what could Hellboy 3 actually deliver other than the apocalypse? Um, because that is what is being um, foreseen by this character. But we'll talk about Hellboy 3 a bit later. I always do this. I always say we'll talk about it later. I will talk about it later. But... Um, I just want to go through a, a couple of other characters um, that we get in this movie. We have the introduction of Johann Krauss uh, as a BPRD agent, very much a stickler for tradition and rules, um, voiced by an unrecognisable Seth MacFarlane. I'll say, I'm a child. Krauss's mispronunciation of focused um, will never not amuse me. Fuck you, <laughs> It's just great. Um, Krauss is a lot more involved than Myers was. He gets given some great scenes, but we never actually dwell on Krauss. And that is actually really great because we're not here to see Krauss. Krauss is fun. Krauss is useful. But the characters we want to see are really front and centre. And just to kind of say, for that very fleeting moment at the start, it's absolutely wonderful to see John Hurt. Um, his presence is sorely missed in this movie. Um, but Professor Broom needs to not be around um, because the only way that Hellboy will become Hellman, essentially, is to do it without the father figure there. We do it without the guidance. Um, another thing that's really interesting in this movie 
is the first time you watch it, you don't really see the not so subtle uh, images of things like fertility and babies and twins. Um, but then you watch it again. And I mean, I've watched this movie quite a few times and I still see things that I missed um, in previous viewings. Um, there are many images, fleeting images throughout to do with fertility and babies and twins, um, indicating this very unknown future for Hellboy and Liz specifically. Um, obviously, Noala and Noada are twins. They are the last of their kind. Hellboy's future children, also going to be twins. Um, they are essentially the last of their kind as well. Um, they have an uncertain future. Um, they essentially have a demon prince for a father. Uh, a demon prince who will bring about the end of the world and a human pyrokinetic mother um, who because she looks human she has one foot in the human world and she has another in their world fertility wise there is a replica of the statue of the venus of willendorf um, which emphasizes female fertility and childbearing it is what is used to crush the tooth fairies who are just uh, yeah as as little tiny little bad guys go i mean they are really freaky um but anyway um the real venus of willendorf is actually only about four inches tall so they had to significantly size up the venus of willendorf um babies are everywhere too um his gun in the forest god scene is called big baby um the tooth fairies themselves look very childlike there are billboards of pregnant women um, not to mention the glaringly obvious rescue of the baby uh, during the fight with the elemental forest god. Um, and again, there's a lot of last of their kind in this movie. Um, the Nuala and Nuada are the last of their kind. Hellboy is the last of his kind. The elemental forest god is the last of its kind. Um, and the thing that always impresses me so much about the elemental forest god scene is that, A, it still looks really great. Um, and it's one of the very few scenes in the movie that's actually CGI because pretty much everything else, obviously apart from the tooth fairies, but pretty much everything else, all of the scenes in the troll market, it's all practical and it looks so great. But even a CGI forest god just looks so gorgeous. Um, and ultimately, the demise of the forest god ends up creating beauty um, at the price of extinction. And it's just something that you kind of just sit and you watch it. And it kind of blows your mind. It takes your breath away a little bit. That something that could be destructive is really only just trying to protect itself. And ultimately what you end up with is beauty in the world. Um, and it's a beauty that you'll never see again because it's the last of its kind. Um, and it really makes you think about what we as humanity are actually doing to nature. You know, we are destroying things that are creating beauty that we will never see again. Um, and it's something that a movie like this, you would think it wouldn't make you think about things like that, but it really does. And it kind of, again, goes to the mind of Del Toro, who, when he creates a scene... It's not just a scene. There's, there's many deeper layers of meaning through the work that Del Toro does. And I think that's what makes him just such a fascinating director. Um, this movie is heavily influenced by Tolkien. 
um, and Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, and you can kind of see it from the CGI introduction, the puppets. Um, apparently it was supposed to be live action and I'm really glad they didn't because it doesn't need to be. Um, it really kind of draws you in to have it done with these kind of CGI wooden puppets to tell the story. And it is very reminiscent of the story of Lord of the Rings. And it's additionally interesting when you take into account that Del Toro was up to direct The Hobbit at one point uh, before Peter Jackson took up those reins. Um, last episode, I talked a little bit about superhero cinema in the early 2000s. Um, it was really a time when the superhero genre was um, taking off. Um, anyway, uh, superhero movies in 2008 were a totally different prospect. Um, not only did we have Hellboy 2 that year, we also had the evolution of Batman um, in Christopher Nolan's genre defined The Dark Knight, which was the sequel to 2004's Batman Begins. Um, and really the high point of DC's output probably since the original Tim Burton Batman movies. Um, 2008 also introduced Hancock to the world. Um, that was despite it not being based on any existing material. But I can't really talk about 2008 without talking about essentially the birth of what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's, it's really hard to remember cinema without it. Um, but 12 years ago, Marvel took the ultimate gamble and released a tiny little movie called Iron Man um, in May of 2008 and an even tinier movie called The Incredible Hulk in June of 2008 um, and those two movies uh, beat Hellboy 2's release in July of that year. Um, when you look at a movie like Hellboy 2 um, it would be really easy to see it fitting into the current MCU um, and the cinematic landscape is so different now it almost feels like Hellboy 2 with its scope and humour and attention to detail probably a actually benefited more from being released in 2018 um for example rather than in 2008 um because i feel like we are used to this now this is kind of the norm if you look at any kind of mcu movie that's kind of you know based a bit more around comedy um than has you know more serious undertones um hellboy 2 really fits into that mold it's almost like it came out at the wrong time but Hellboy 2 could have only come out in 2008. Um, I mentioned in the previous episode on Hellboy that when Ron Perlman was filming Hellboy, he was 54. Um, at this point, um, he is 58. And with the best will in the world, um, I know Harrison Ford is up for doing Indiana Jones movies into his 70s, but it's a very physical role. Um, Hellboy is extremely physical. Um, it's extremely makeup intense. Um, the makeup in this movie, by the way, is just phenomenal. Um, I think they got nominated for an Oscar, actually, for the makeup because it's really fantastic makeup again in this movie. Everything about this movie is gorgeous. Um, but um, it does feel a bit of an anomaly still. Hellboy 3. <laughs> Let's talk about Hellboy 3. Let's talk about uh, the... Hmm. So, Hellboy 3 never happened and it was talked about for years and years and years I'm pretty certain I actually signed an online petition for Hellboy 3 at one point because I'm such a fan um, and it was something that I really wanted I really I needed to know 
what happens to these characters. Um, I needed to see if the Angel of Death's prophecy was going to come true. I needed to know what was going to happen. But I, like pretty much every other fan in the entire world um, who really, really wanted this, everyone is still really disappointed, I think, um, that we will never see this kind of culmination of what clearly was always meant to be a trilogy. And instead of um, making the third Hellboy movie, the choice was made to reboot it. Um, and, and that seems to be purely down to money. Um, there may be some other factors involved in it, but from a financial point of view, um, the 2019 reboot cost $50 million. Um, and that was compared to the purported $120 million that Del Toro wanted in order to make Hellboy 3. Um, it's very clear that when you look at something like Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, and just how vivid and gorgeous and and the, the world that it builds, and it really kind of immerses you in that world, um, that they could not have made a sequel to that movie for $50 million. Um, and I think, as I've kind of already said on a few different occasions, the fact that Hellboy the reboot cost $50 million. Um, I mean, first of all, how on earth did that movie cost $50 million? Because, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I always say I try and be positive about movies. And I did mention in the previous episode on Hellboy, there are things to like about the reboot. Um, I think David Harbour does the best possible job that he can, given the material he's there to work with. I think Mila Jovovich... She's obviously clearly enjoying the role that she's given. Um, but again, she's not given much. Um, and the Baba Yaga scene specifically is is the, the most enjoyable scene in the whole movie. The aesthetics of that movie aren't well thought out like these two movies were. Um, so there is things to like. But overall, I would kind of question, well, what were they thinking? <laughs> um, but, you know, if it's about the money, it's about the money. Um, Ron Perlman has stated that the third Hellboy movie would have been about Hellboy becoming the Beast of the Apocalypse, um, as was foreshadowed in the first two movies. Um, however, uh, Hellboy comes to terms to meet with his destined fate by defending humanity, as opposed to wiping out all of mankind. Um, Hellboy's twins were going to bear resemblance to Hellboy and Liz, respectively, and one of them was going to be corrupted and the other one was going to be angelic. Um, whether that is actually what was going to happen or whether that is maybe um, one of the many ideas that they put forward for the movie, I'm not entirely sure. But that is what Ron Perlman has actually come out instead. So I kind of feel like the ultimate end for Hellboy to actually defend humanity, I think, would have been quite nice to see. Um, I kind of feel like the storyline with the twins maybe. Uh, I don't know how I would feel about, especially if they're children, I don't know how I would feel about having a, a essentially a corrupt demon child and, uh, you know, an, an angel child. I don't know. The other interesting thing, um, along with uh, Hellboy 3, there was also a spin-off movie. It was titled Hellboy Silverlance, which was also in the works. Um, in the last episode, I had the pleasure of conducting a virtual interview with the co-writer of Hellboy in 2004, which Peter Briggs. Um, Peter was actually given the task back in 2010 to write the screenplay for Silverlands. Um, 
and he actually gave me quite a lot of information on that um, particular project. Um, unfortunately, I was re running really long on time um, and it kind of all had to be cut out of the episode. Um, but um, Peter has actually permitted me to add that part of the recording into this episode because I kind of also felt like it was quite valid to talk about Hellboy 3 and also to talk about the potential spin-offs that were planned in a similar vein. So so to explain a little bit more about Silverlands, um, the concept behind it and ultimately what happened to it, here's Peter Briggs with that information. There was going to be a Hellboy spin-off. Um, it was called Silverlands and the way it came about was sort of interesting. I was in New Zealand working with uh, Sir Richard Taylor at Weta Workshop. Uh, they were going to be doing the visual effects for a movie I'd been um, working on um, with Gary Kurtz, who was the producer of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back and Dark Crystal. Um, and uh, it was called Panzer 88, and you know, we were moving forward with that. And out of the blue one day, I get a call from a lady called Lisa Gooding um, from Universal, who uh, was somebody I'd known for a while, and we were, um, you know, trying to, we liked each other's, um, you know, mutual work and kind of wanted to find something to do. And, um, and she said, hey, look, you know, um, we're moving forward with the Hellboy spin-off, and obviously you're the first person I wanted to talk to, uh, which I, it was very flattering. And I said, well, and um, she said, I said, well, what do you want to do with it? And she said, well, you know, we want to do something with uh, Prince Nuada, who was the uh, character, the elven prince character from the second movie, The Golden Army. And I said, hey, well, really? Are you, is that set in stone? And then they were like, yeah. And I said, well, is Del Toro involved with this? And she said, no, Del Toro won't be involved in it. And and I was surprised by that. And I said, okay, well, there was the slight problem of uh, Nuada being a little bit dead at the end of The Golden Army. And, and she said, well, you know, have a think about it and see what you can come up with. And uh, And I said, okay. And I called my um, one of the two co-writers uh, of the original material that um, uh, Panzer 88 was based on, uh, James Cowan and Aaron Mason. I called Aaron up, and Aaron and I, you know, worked to get well together, and we were good with putting um, ideas together. And I said to Aaron, "Look, you know, would you like to come on board this project at Universal?" and um, and uh, work on it with me and he said yeah and so we sort of sat down and we we solved the Nuada problem which was quite elegant um, and, um, and came up with something we gave it to Universal and uh, very quickly they came back and were very enthusiastic and said yeah we'd like to move on this and, um, and, and so you know we sat back and waited for the wheels to grind as they always do at film studios and um, suddenly there, were, there was a hiccup, I think, that Hellboy 3 had, had uh, raised its head and that there was a possibility that um, they might go ahead with that. Um, and, uh, you know, we kind of were put on the back burner and I figured that that was the end of it. Um, and then flash forward five years and I'm living in Sweden. I'm just about to move back to England. And I get a call from uh, Universal, from Lisa again. She goes, hey, guess what? Uh, Silverlands, it's back on. And I was, you know, you could have blown me down with a feather. And um, and I said, okay, so what do you want to do? Well, look at the material and let's see if we can, like, bring it up to date. And, uh, you know, I had some five years before, I'd bumped into Ron Perlman at... Uh, at a uh, Sons of Anarchy rap party in uh, Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. 
and um, and Ron was like, Briggs, you got anything for me? And and I had another project called Mortis Rex at the time, which was a Roman monster movie, uh, which is a script I still like very much. And uh, I had been thinking about Ron for a part for that, but I said to him, look, you know, yeah, I've got this thing, but, you know, would you be interested in putting on the makeup and doing Hellboy again? Um, and and he said, yeah, well, sure, you know, if you if they pay me enough. And uh, jokingly, because uh, Ron really loves Hellboy, obviously. And um, we, uh, you know, we had talked about putting Hellboy in, in the storyline, but, you know, Universal, uh, for, for the first go around, uh, kind of wanted to keep Hellboy out of the story and concentrate on Abe um, for reasons of, of, you know, a possible Golden Army sequel, which, you know, obviously was now not going to happen anymore in 2015. Um, so I talked to Universal and they were good about it. They want, they, they, they were, they said, yeah, you can have her. So we had Hellboy in uh, two very minor scenes, but it was still Abe's story. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the uh, the whole reboot situation came up again, and that was the end of it. And you know, since you know there was a, I I spoke about it to somebody on a website just after the the reboot was announced, and, and um, you know that kind of spread like wildfire across the internet, and people were sort of like, well, that sounds great. Can we have this film, please? Because Nuada had a very big um, female fan following you know i mean the the the, the elven prince thing you know as with um the elves in lord of the rings you know is is something that that appeals on a kind of primal level um to to fantasy genre um fans and so you know people wanted to see new art again and there was a there was a little bit of a, a minor kind of upsurge in you know well can we get this movie um and you know since hellboy 3 that question's come up again people say well you know is it possible and i'm very doubtful because the rights would all have been transferred over to millennium um in order to be able to do this they would have to go back to universal i mean this isn't the first time the rights would have been transferred i mean weirdly enough hellboy started off at universal i mean it was a larry gordon movie back in 1995 1996 um and when i um signed on board i signed my paperwork with universal and del toro came on a few years later um you know did his draft and universal were not keen on pursuing the project at that time and so uh the project um you know died at universal and then revolution studios um picked it up um and uh the the movie bounced across from universal to sony um and uh when they came to do Golden Army, it went back from, you know, Sony didn't want to do a sequel for reasons best known to Sony, and it went back across to Universal. So, you know, having gone across to Millennium doesn't necessarily mean it couldn't go back to Universal, but they would have to make a deal. Dark Horse would have to make a deal with Universal in order to make it happen. I know that Universal would like to make that to happen because they... They really liked the project and they really liked the characters and they really wanted to do this. Um, but who knows? I mean, it's it's in the lap of the gods and Mike Richardson and Dark Horse and I suppose Mike Mignola um, as to what happens with the, uh, with the project next. Um, I was actually very surprised 
because I had always assumed that um, Silver Lance was something that had been discussed with Mike. I, I know that Dark Horse basically have the property to shop around um, where they like, and 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 um, had a, I had a brief conversation with Mike about Silver Lance, and he was surprised because nobody had mentioned it to him, um, which which you know was a little upsetting to me um, because I I you know thought that somebody would have said something to him. But, uh, yeah, no, it would be great uh, if the project happened, but I don't see that happening. It would require, you know, a little bit of conversation. But Mike Richardson, if you're listening to this, get in touch with Lisa Gooding and uh, let's let's go make Silver Lines. Uh But I would say it's dead, um, which is a shame. But, you know, there, there's been uh, a, a big heap of projects behind me over the years that I've worked on, um, you know, Hellraiser sequels and adaptations of all kinds of things that you know that never reach fruition it's you know it's every film you see in hollywood is just basically the small tip of the iceberg sticking up above the sea and there's a giant bulk of projects that never get realized along the way uh, that's why they call it development hell um so yeah no on to the next one um but it's a shame i think it would have been fun i think the fans would have liked it so thank you again to Peter for his involvement over the last two episodes, but specifically his involvement in Hellboy. Um, you can find him over on Twitter at the Peter Briggs. He's genuinely uh, a lovely guy. He clearly has so much love and passion for Hellboy. Um, he's immensely proud of the 2004 movie, and so he should be, because as a piece on its own, both of them as a pieces on their own, they work really well, but together I think they really complement each other really nicely. Um, but again, a massive thank you to Peter for just being so involved and and so willing to take part um, because he really genuinely could not do more for me. Um, so I really am very grateful. So the obligatory Keanu reference, this is something that I do uh, for not every episode, but for the majority of episodes, um, I actually missed one. I think I missed one in Arthur Christmas, um, which uh, no one actually noticed, which was uh, which was quite good for me. But um, but by my own made up rules, um, I and I've just made them up. I can't reuse the same obligatory Keanu reference twice. So when I use the obligatory Keanu reference in Hellboy. Um, I talked about something very specific that linked Hellboy and Constantine um, and I feel like I can't do that again because that would be cheating. So I'm not going to lie, this was a difficult one because I was scraping the barrel with the reference in Constantine. So I think the only thing I can do is go for a essentially a degrees of separation because there's nothing else I can link Keanu with Hellboy to. So I'm going to use degrees of separation and I'm going to say Keanu starred in Constantine. Obviously, again, I reference that quite a lot in um, in Hellboy. Um, he starred in Constantine alongside the perfect, wonderful, beautiful Rachel Weisz. Uh, Rachel Weisz is an actress who I um, very much admire. And she starred in Enemy at the Gates and she starred in that movie with one Mr. Ron Perlman. He who is Anung and Rama. And that is the best that you're going to get, guys. So <laughs> that is it. <laughs> Um, I mean, let's just say the next obligatory Keanu reference for the next episode. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Genuinely, literally none. Um, but uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, quickly, just want to mention the score. So this score was done by Danny Elfman. 
the previous one was done by Marco Beltrami. Um, it's completely different. It's kind of got a bit more of a rock kind of vibe to it. Um, I wouldn't say it's particularly memorable. I kind of feel like the Beltrami scores may be a bit more memorable. Um, but it also does kind of um, feel very similar to sort of modern superhero themes in a way. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could argue that modern superhero themes aren't necessarily memorable. You know, it's not, they're no kind of Superman theme or Indiana Jones theme or anything like that. But, um, but it's fine. Like, it is different. But again, this is a different movie. It's got a very different aesthetic. And I think that they kind of wanted to bring that across in a very different school. Um, and it worked because it is different. Um, the main difference with the music in Hellboy 2 is the introduction of pop music um which again is something that's very reminiscent of modern superhero movies um you have the inclusion of barry manilow's can't smile without you um, and you also have a very very little clip of travis all i want to do is rock um, which is a great song um and while the inclusion of music feels commonplace now um to have um a random song just inserted in an opportune moment it hadn't really been done in those sort of movies up to that point and like I said, I guess that's why Hellboy 2 feels more in line with modern superhero movies. And they are obviously so etched into the current fabric of Hollywood. Um, and that's obviously more so than Hellboy. And again, that's a bit of a difference between the two movies. Um, Hellboy is the, the more faithful adaptation of the work. And, and Hellboy 2 is literally just full on del Toro. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It's elaborate. It's a visionary delight. But it's also what we'd expect of a comic book movie today. Hellboy 2 had a slightly increased budget from the first one. It had a budget of $85 million. And every penny can literally be accounted for on screen. There is no change from that $85 million. Um, it makes you wonder how Del Toro made it look so spectacular on such a relatively small budget. As I previously mentioned, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army came out in July of 2008 in the US. Um, it came out for a week and then The Dark Knight premiered the following week. Um, and whether The Dark Knight kind of... Because The Dark Knight did kind of eclipse pretty much everything at the time because that was just something completely different. Um, obviously, just a fantastic role uh, by the late Heath Ledger, someone who will be uh, appearing on Verbal Diorama. Not literally, obviously, because unfortunately he's no longer with us. But um, a, one of my favourite movies of his is actually going to be coming up soon. I'm very excited about it. The Dark Knight, obviously, um, Christopher Nolan's second Batman movie. Um, but Hellboy 2 actually ended up making $160.4 million. So it actually did quite well. Um, but, as we still lament, not enough for a sequel. Um and we're never going to see that trilogy. Um, so I kind of feel like instead of waiting for the perfect trilogy, I think we have to just accept the perfect duo and and just kind of accept that this is the end of the story. Um, as I said, Hellboy and Hellboy 2, two movies that complement each other, but they're so different. Um, but a great example of actually taking the source material and making it interesting and fun and different. And to be honest, we need a bit more different in our Hollywood movies. There's not enough different. Um, someone like Guillermo del Toro can go out there and make something different. Um, and I genuinely just think he's amazing at that. 
So over to social media thoughts. So I always ask for social media thoughts. Um, had quite a few for Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. So we will go into those. Um, firstly, over on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth, who are friends of the podcast, Derek and Laurel, said just purely, simply breathtaking production design. I think that just kind of sums it all up, really. Andy at Geek Salad Radio said, I haven't seen it since its release. In a lot of ways, it's better than the first one. Everyone has grown more comfortable in their roles and Doug Jones finally gets his moment. But I'll be damned if I ever see this hit a US streaming service in the past decade. That's probably why myself, along with many other people, aren't as familiar with it. And that is quite interesting because although it is regularly but i have seen it on british tv channels um at on and off points sort of throughout the year um i don't often see it on any streaming services over here um neither that nor the uh 2004 hellboy movie um and i do feel like it does deserve to have uh, a renaissance goes without saying that the the 2019 reboot is available on streaming services here at the moment um personally i would prefer if the originals were as well i it, maybe it's something to do with licensing i'm not sure but um but yeah that is disappointing i think that it definitely these movies definitely deserve to be seen um and definitely deserve to be put on some sort of streaming service at blc agnew said hellboy 2 is a great superhero sequel a visually imaginative genre piece and the changeling of a dreaming urban fantasy film we never got also, it looks like it cost twice as much as it did. GDT knows how to milk a budget. Pours out one for Hellboy 3. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest, I don't even know what Changeling the Dreaming is. Uh, maybe I should have looked that up before I spoke your words. Um, but, um, yes, the budget is just how Guillermo del Toro did that, I have no idea. But this is a beautiful-looking movie, um, and um, yeah, we all pull one out for Hellboy 3. Um, and it's not, I know it's not just me who's really sad about that, but um, maybe we can make it up, make up the story in our own minds. Um, and think about how we would want Hellboy 3 to end. I don't know. Um, at Movies Work said, A great everything but more sequel with great effects and set pieces. Del Toro once again handling the genre with ease. At Sean Geek Podcast said, even better than the original, this movie is beautiful. At Stunt Goat 75 said, Been a while since I watched it, but I remember it being a lot darker than the first one, and Del Toro takes the design up to a whole new level of beautiful. Who knew that a member of Bros would make a good vampire? Um, there was, because obviously um, he realised that he did actually make a mistake a bit later on in the tweet. Um, he obviously didn't mean vampire, because the uh, member of Bros was a vampire in Blade 2. Um, and that was the what at gaming dad Paul kind of came back with saying wasn't the guy from Bross and Blade too. And finally, uh, at DW Lundberg said Time magazine's Richard Corliss wrote about Star Wars on June third, nineteen seventy-seven. I officially got old, basically saying the movie sells right over his head watching it for the first time. That's very much how I feel about Hellboy too. Troll markets, tooth fairies, gas hole, not for me. And I think that's fair. You know, I've always kind of said that, you know, you can't have comments from people that are 100 uh, percent complimentary at all times. I think it's you've got to include a varied response. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. Um, and over on Instagram, at Wars and Saws said, Both excellent. If the studio hadn't been greedy, wanting to reboot the 
franchise, we could have had another quality instalment instead of the pile of crap that nobody wanted. Karma is a B. Just because I don't like to swear on this podcast, I do swear in real life, I have to admit, but I don't swear on here. Um, But the B word is is what they said. And and there was another interesting comment on Instagram, um, and I'm going to include it, but I I feel like it might be someone from the troll market, um, so to speak. Um, because they said stupid child brainwash movie um, okay so fair enough <laughs> but yeah I, I think that might have been one of the trolls from the troll market um, deciding to uh, to uh, pop up into the the modern world um, anyway I am running a little bit longer than usual um, again uh, a massive thank you to Peter Briggs for allowing me to use his audio to talk about Silverlands and just a really fascinating story behind it um would have been great if we'd have got Silverlands as well um to summarize how I feel about these movies I it's really tough because I wanted to do these two movies and I wanted to do them together and I wanted to to show sort of how they are so different and how they're so complementary and but most of all how valuable they are as pieces of work, as pieces of art, um, you know, back in 2004 and 2008, we did have superhero movies, but they weren't like Hellboy. Um, and I feel like Hellboy as, a, as an entity, um, maybe part of the reason why the reboot didn't do so well is maybe people have forgotten about him. Maybe people, because they weren't exposed to these movies, they don't know the character. They don't know how rich and uh, wonderful the characters are in these movies um and just how great the movies are the production design the effects the makeup the prosthetics the costume design um you know everything about these movies is is just so wonderful they really are movies that i feel like i can go to and just sit and enjoy um and there's not many movies that i could actually do that with and and kind of sit and enjoy multiple times i mean i've always kind of said the mummy is probably one that is the number one that I would go to. Um, But Hellboy and Hellboy 2, um, they cover um, very different aspects of that kind of genre of movie that I just really, really enjoy watching. Um, And so I I don't know how I could kind of finish this episode off other than obviously I've spoiled both of these movies incredibly. Um, But... If you by chance haven't seen it, um, and I know of one person, I've been speaking a lot with the guys over at um, Rewind Moviecast. Um, we do a weekly movie watch together, and I know that Gally from that podcast has never seen Hellboy Two. <laughs> so, Gally, if you are listening to this, I hope you did buy Hellboy Two and you have watched it um, because I know he enjoyed Hellboy but he did admit he'd not seen the sequel. Um, and maybe there is a bit of that going on. Like maybe you've only seen one, you've not seen the other. I mean, I would advise anyone to A, watch them both and B, watch them both at about the same time. Watch them one after the other um, because there is re- something really special about these movies that I still kind of can't quite put my finger on why they are so special, but they genuinely do feel unique and interesting and, um, f- and valuable. They are really valuable um, and I just wish that we could have got more of this rather than more of 
that. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. Um, as always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Um, so the next episode um, is something I've actually wanted to feature for a while um, because I haven't really done a full-on comedy. I've done Clueless and I've done Legally Blonde, but they kind of weren't really marketed as full-on comedies. Um, and they were kind of more aimed at like um, a teen, sort of teen to young female market. Um, but this movie is is a very broad comedy. It is still very aimed at the female market. I want to talk about Bridesmaids. Um, Bridesmaids was a full-on comedy, but it was also touted as, in inverted commas, the female hangover. Um, but I think it's actually much better than The Hangover. Um, and I also think it's not just a comedy. It's a very funny movie, but I think it also has a lot of soul and a lot of heart. And I can't wait to really dig into that. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on... I haven't got any water with me, so I'm just going to have to go for it. Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin, 1992-2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels 2000, The Mummy, 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Logan, Edge of Tomorrow, Legally Blonde, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, Mystery Men, Passengers, Stardust, Constantine, Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo and the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away, Treasure Planet, Clueless, and Hellboy 2004. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash verbal diorama from $2 a month. You can get some fab perks such as access to the upcoming schedule, a shout out on the next episode and on Twitter and early release episodes. At the moment, due to everything going on in the world, I've decided that any and all donations to the Patreon are going to be donated to support the NHS charities. Um, which are obviously raising money for the wonderful doctors, nurses and frontline medical staff who work in the NHS fighting coronavirus and also obviously taking care of patients. So that's basically what I want to do from now on. Um, but I want to thank, obviously, wonderful patrons that I have. Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek and Jason. Thank you for supporting Verbal Diorama. Thank you for continuing to support Verbal Diorama as well. Um, you can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions at verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to my website, which is verbaldiorama.com. I really need to do some more with the website because at the moment it's, it doesn't get dated very often. Um, I'm a bit too busy. Um, basically, I need to hire just like loads of people to do stuff for me, but I can't because I can't afford to pay them. Um, but um, yeah, I, I do plan to do a bit more on the website very soon. Um, if you like the podcast and you like me, you like Verbal Diorama and you want to leave me a great review, um, you can do so on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And um, that would just be fantastic. Um, and finally, um, I do have a column over at Film Stories magazine, which is an independent British movie magazine. It's currently on a bit of a hiatus because of COVID-19. 
but I would very much appreciate if you would continue to support it because it is an independent publication um, and everywhere is struggling right now. And I know that there's so many things that need your support. A lot of local businesses still need support and stuff like that. But I, I would just very much appreciate if you could, you know, maybe go on and purchase a copy of the back catalogue or something. Um, that would just be wonderful. Um, and also I'm still doing bits for Film Stories Online um, each week I recommend a great British movie podcast um, and I also update the iPlayer movie list which is actually really interesting um, if you are in the UK and you do have access to the BBC iPlayer they have quite a lot of really brilliant movies on that service that you wouldn't think um, like for example last week they had A Fish Called Wanda just really randomly they had two Indiana Jones movies they had Paddington 2 um obviously it changes week on week but um but yes yeah, some really fantastic movies uh, available for free courtesy of the BBC here in the UK and finally I would just like to say Keanu I'd give my life for you and I'd do the dishes and anyone who knows me knows that's true love bye Ooh, vision, no.